Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. I'm your host, Major Aaron Davis. In this episode, I sat down with Major Marissa Kester, author of There from the Beginning, A History of Women in the Air Force, which was published this year with Air University Press. The story of women in the military is a long one, yet as Major Kester says in her book, it's largely a story of absence. Often the role of women was secretive or considered of such little importance it didn't make it into official records, let alone into books or memoirs. Slowly, as we've evolved as a society over time, we've taken a bigger interest in groups that have traditionally been marginalized and authors like Major Kester have done a lot of research to shed light on the hardworking people in the background of recorded history. Join us today for part one of Air Force Women's History, where we begin to take a look at the roles women played in the military and at war, and at the laws that evolved alongside a changing society. Uh, yeah, my name is Marissa Kester, and I am currently uh, serving in the Air Force Reserve as an IMA. Um, I work for uh, AFRC, the headquarters, and the Historian and Heritage Office. Uh, prior to that, I spent five years on active duty as an intel officer. Um, so that was kind of fun. I mean, you know, everyone has their own unique career path, and mine was also probably not the typical intel. So I worked um, at NASIC and then did some teaching and so kind of got to focus on the big picture and writing and publication, which is my favorite thing anyway. Um, (laughs) So yeah, and then jumped over to being a historian after I had kids and uh, got into this project, um, just doing my own kind of research and trying to understand the the historical context of the Air Force so I could do other projects better. Um, And it just, I I kind of noticed, um, not necessarily one big epiphany, but just like kept not seeing women in the records, but just kind of randomly in the records. And I'm like, there is no kind of narrative about this. And I'm curious about it. And then, you know, once I realized that there, no one had ever really put one together, I kind of just decided, Hey, I can, you know, do that. (laughs) Uh, So, okay. I guess we'll sort of start. It's hard to say start at the beginning because it feels like women have been kind of sneaking themselves into the military for hundreds of years. Uh, And most of them, if they were, unless they were caught, it wasn't really documented. But I guess as far as the U.S. goes, just really briefly, like pre-World War II, what what was the role of women at that time, if they even had one in the military? Yeah, there was no official role, um, certainly not until um, 1948 when the Women's Integration Act was signed. So anything previous to that was um, either, like you said, kind of sneakily or uh, where women, you know, dressed up as men and went and joined armies. um, Or most often it was a case of women who followed uh, their husbands, like uh, Revolutionary War or other previous wars where the husband, if the, if the husband was at war, there was no source of income or care for the family. So they kind of had no choice. So a lot of times women and their kids would pack up and actually go live in the camp with the army. Um, and the army had allocations for this. So they kind of did like a trade experience where the women would do the laundry services and the cooking and the 
probably the nursing and all those type of things in exchange for just being able to like stay with the camp and be fed um, and have somewhere to sleep at night. So um, a lot of it was kind of out of necessity, but there absolutely were women who were also doing it out of um, probably other more valorous reasons. Um, and then as the years progressed, uh, nursing has always been a huge aspect and nurses weren't even halfway officially considered part of the military until 1901 when they were integrated in the army kind of <laughs> but obviously throughout every war you have needed nurses so nurses have been there and nurses have uh, almost always been women um, and so but some of the other cooler roles were women who were spies um, or who did just the, uh, kind of like behind the scenes stuff as civilians, of course, as just regular everyday, um, just helping out their cause is particularly popular during the Civil War, um, where women served as spies. Um, so, yeah, kind of a variety of things, but never officially, formally recognized as part of the military until World War II was the first time. Well, World War One technically was the first time, and that was kind of just like the bare basic. Um, the Navy allowed clerical assistants uh, to be in their service during the wartime, but that didn't last very long. So the U.S. participation, and as soon as that was over, they were kind of kicked back out. And so World War II was the first time we really saw the government say, okay, you know, or the military say, we can use you and we'll pay you. You're not, you know, officially part of this. Like you're not going to get the full rank and benefits and support and all of that. Um, but, you know, we could use you <laughs> in more than, or, or at least the civilian capacity. So it was kind of just this quasi participation thing up until the integration act. And really it was world war II, and the amount of women and just the population in general that had to be involved in that war effort um, where there was like this tipping point where it was like, okay, well, you know, there is a place for women um, and they are helpful and we could use them. And it's a great, you know, the whole idea behind the integration act was to have almost like a reserve kind of force. Like if we need all these women again we have some that are ready to go that are already you know in the regular component on active duty um, or in the reserve and so we can use them if we need to but it was never really like yeah women are great let's 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 throw them in they're equal to men you know the whole thing that took obviously decades to kind of get up to that point um so yeah it was a slow evolutionary thing but it was definitely dictated by the demands of just of wartime needs so that you know during peacetime there's always more resistance to having women involved but during wartime it was like come on in <laughs> come on over we could use your help so um the army air corps um they were the most open to using women and used the most women during world war ii and, and a lot of that was because aviation was a new kind of technology and while obviously it had been militarized to a certain extent it was still you know, the 1930s, the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, is when aviation really kind of like hit its boon, especially in the civilian sector. Um, after World War Two, the government sold off a lot of its planes, and it just became kind of this like luxury sport that was really popular. So there'd be air shows and barnstormers, and it just had this kind of like cultural following. And so when World War Two started and when the Airwacs um, well, the Army Air Corps, and then they formed the Air Wax once women were allowed to kind of join as an auxiliary service um, as part of the Army and then the Air Wax. Um, they were the most open to using women because there had been plenty of civilian women that had 
just throughout the 1930s, you know, broken all these um, speed records and just been participating in the aviation scene. And so they were more open um, to that idea. Plus, most of the men who were serving in the Army Air Corps were also, you know, civilian. So they had been part of the aviation world. So it just was kind of a different flavor as opposed to the traditional standing army, um, the wax, where, and, you know, women were still definitely way more involved with driving trucks, fixing equipment, like the kind of stuff that during the 50s and 60s, and then, you know, part of the 70s, they weren't allowed to do. So they kind of regressed. So World War II was when women were really pretty involved to a great extent, greater extent than ever before in the military as part of the auxiliary service and then towards the end as part of actually the army. Um, but yeah, it just, it regressed over the next few years. Um, and then also, you know, for the civilian women, the Rosie the Riveter, like you mentioned, there was this huge push because obviously the draft took many men away from the home, just as war tends to do, has done anyway. Um, and so women, you know, had to step in and fill those roles. And a lot of companies at that point, knew that they could hire women for particularly administrative and clerical and like factory line type jobs who would do a great job and they didn't have to pay them. I mean, anywhere near as much or give them any sort of benefits. So from a business perspective, it was also beneficial to bring women in um, to factories and shipyards and all these places. Um, so there was, like I mentioned, there's always a push during wartime and especially like a world war two. I can't imagine that, that level of effort and involvement from the population, but as soon as it's over, it's like, like it happened, <laughs> you know, it all just disappears and everyone goes home and um, very few are left kind of waiting in the force who wanted to stay in. Most women and men um, after the war just went back to what they were doing previously. So it was kind of this unique window into like what was possible, but didn't necessarily, whether it was going to stick was up in the air for a little bit. So Although it seems like women were actually extremely helpful during this time, um, it seems like the reception by men and in the military was not necessarily always welcoming. Um, I know uh, in your book, you said at one point that they were sometimes considered, the women at the, in the WAC were sometimes considered like uniformed prostitutes, and that there was a lot of sabotage with the women's um, planes and things like that when they went to fly missions. Um, why do you think that was? Yeah, definitely a lot of pushback. Um, there was even, there was this massive smear campaign kind of during 1943-44. So once the, you know, we were well underway with the war and being involved in the war effort. And um, the FBI even got involved because it got so bad. And they found out it was coming from the enlisted men. Um, and so that should tell you right there, like there was a lot of resistance. And, and that's kind of the underlying theme I feel like I took away from studying this whole topic was just the cultural change that is required because so much of women being integrated into the military it's it's not really a technical or tactical thing it's so much more of a social uh cultural thing um and so getting past those like belief systems that we have programmed into us you know about what women can and can't do and this is women fully participating in this too so there was a lot of pushback from women as well it wasn't like women wanted to join and men were against them. Like, no, it was plenty, plenty of women who were also like, women shouldn't be doing this and the whole thing. So um, yeah, a lot of pushback, particularly against women aviators who, you know, a certain portion of the men felt like 
well, hey, they get to go do this job stateside. They're safe. They're protected. I want to go do that. Like, I could go do that. Um, so just this idea that you see persist through the decades that women are taking jobs away from men. Um, and, you know, that same idea exists now in a different form, right? <laughs> Throw in different, you know, races and religions and all these different things. So just that kind of like fear of I'm losing my livelihood or my um, way of life or what I think is right in the world and it's being overturned against my will. And so, yeah, you see that played out. Um, I talk in the book about how um, the wasps, uh, they had a lot of kind of sabotage incidents, but they really at the time downplayed it. It sounds like from all the um, interviews I've heard because they just didn't, they knew if they, if they made a fuss about it, it would kind of like, encourage the stereotype of like women can't handle it or they shouldn't be here or you know um it's almost like hazing right but obviously in a malevolent kind of way <laughs> um so they they put up with it most of the time and uh really only kind of talked about it later and again their biographies and stuff um so yeah it sounds like it was a problem and kind of they always had to be aware of it but um just also had to kind of persist amazing to think about yeah, it really is. Um, so we we kind of talked about this a little bit post-war leading up to the Women's Armed Forces Integration Act in 1948. What was going on at that time? You know, culturally, the war is over. Men are coming back home. Um, I think, you know, we're all kind of familiar with that time, the white picket fence moment of time, right? Uh, so what was going on in that window? You know, women start going home. And was there interest in keeping them around? Yeah, that really is such an interesting time. Um, the 1950s were kind of their own special world in and of itself. Like it was this this in-between moment. So yeah, it was economic boom. Everyone was coming home. Baby boom, of course. Um, yeah, the white picket fence, like you said, it was just its own like a moment in time. Um, and so with that post-war, there always seemed to be this... Um, cultural desire to return to normalcy you know quote-unquote normalcy and so after each war you you kind of see this like push um to get everything back to how it was before but as we know once a nation or a person or anyone goes through something like that there is no there is no going back you have to kind of readjust so that you know when the air force was born really and when women were were officially integrated that era um was kind of a just a unique turning point in and of itself for the DOD at large. And so yeah, there was there was probably a year or two where the war was done and most of the women had um separated from the force. Um and so there were a few left and they just kind of let them stay because the idea of forming not only a new air force, but of letting women in the military um in a regular, you know, standing capacity was all being argued uh, for, for years, for two or three years. And so there was, yeah, like I said, there were a few women that kind of just stayed in the force, did their job, kept going. And then they became by default, the first um, members, particularly the, the AirWACs, the former AirWACs, um, they just segued right into the Air Force. Like they kind of just became the first members of the Air Force. Um, you know, when I was doing research, it was like, and I've even gotten this question a few times. People were like, who was the first, you know, we know who the first, women to enlist in the Air Force was, but like the first officer or the first this or that. And it's really hard to say because number one, no one wrote it down. <laughs> but number two, there was a lot of shifting of players around between the services, like when the Integration Act 
was actually signed and put into place and the Air Force was formed and the reserve was formed. And so a lot of women kind of just moved around, like shuffled their position and their service. So yeah, it was kind of just this like shift for lack of a better word into from the World War II era and like pre pre women to this like new, new kind of world where, um, yeah, not only are women included, but like for the Air Force specifically, we have this new service and this new reserve force. And then, of course, right after that, you know, two years later, the Korean War kicks off and we start drafting people again. So it was kind of this scramble. It was a really interesting period where um, there was, I'm sure there were many plans made, but I don't know how many of them actually, you know, followed through the way they were intended <laughs> because just things kept happening. <laughs> it's so funny. I feel like, and you probably agree with me, there's something so... <laughs> DOD about the idea that we had like first female officers kind of just because bureaucratically we didn't bother to do away with them. Um, and I know that comes up <laughs> later on too. Like maybe we talked about um, in the seventies and eighties, maybe the only reason that I'm even sitting here in my uniform today and you put on your uniform uh, is because they just, the paperwork slowed everything down so much that the opinion kept changing before they could pass any of the bills to get rid of it. Totally. And there were so few women. And for a long time, there were so few women that like, yeah, it was almost like too much effort to get rid of them, but too much effort to like put to, to do anything about it. So it was like this really small force for that kind of exact reason, almost like bureaucratic inertia more than anything. <laughs> So funny. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Women's Armed Forces Integration Act uh, of 1948. I feel like that was a big step. Um, it's kind of hard. Historically, it was definitely culturally a big step. Looking back on it now, uh, it's very of its time. So let's talk a little bit about what the act was and then what it said and what it actually outlined as being the role of women. Yes. So the act allowed women to be um, permanent, to have permanent positions uh, in the regular and reserve force as officer, warrant officer, and enlisted members. Um, and so that obviously had not previously existed during World War II. For most of World War II, the women that were involved were part of an auxiliary corps, which meant they were temporary and they did not have the same um, pay or benefits or rank structure, or any of that. So it was really kind of this big move to make it women a permanent, permanent structure within the military. Um, and yeah, I'm the caveats, I guess, <laughs> that were included within every, you know, aspect of, okay, women are allowed to be in, but, you know, basically they, the force had to be kept really small, you know, the officer corps even smaller, there will be no, you know, women supervising men, it was, it was kind of like, you can be in, but you're going to be in this bubble. Um, and the Air Force was different in that they were the only service to not have a separate women's corps within the military. And I think a lot of that was just because, um, like I said, the Air Force was just getting started. So, and the Air Force has always from the beginning, build itself as kind of the smaller, more elite, more technical service. And so they, from like a branding perspective, wanted the best of the best, um, not necessarily separate cores within the Air Force. We just want to stay small and good at what we do, um, that kind of mentality. And so, uh, yeah, no, no separate women's corps within the Air Force, but still all these different kind of um, 
rules that applied to women being in, which weren't necessarily a problem right away, but they became a problem uh, as the years went on. And like, you know, certain um, uh, rank, you know, what's it called? Like a bubble or whatever stovepipe would happen. Um, and just women realized how limited they were, particularly the women that had served in World War II and, and just shifted over to the Air Force um, and who had already had a few years in service. Um, there was just a ceiling, certainly a ceiling. Um, and then, you know, certain caveats written in there, like can't do anything combat related, which actually the verbiage is not that specific. But the biggest thing, honestly, about the Integration Act was that the services were given a lot of power to um, further define each rule. So there's this kind of generic set of rules set out, um, but then the services were allowed to be more specific or, you know, add on whatever rules they felt like uh, they needed, which, you know, makes sense because services were still so separate at that time. Um, But yeah, I'm trying to look. Oh, there it is. Looking in my book to find the list, <laughs> the list of all the, all the um, restrictions. But yeah, just even like the 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 generic like any woman for any reason becomes a parent at any time like can't can't serve. Um, and just yeah, a lot of a lot of restrictions that kind of persisted for a while longer than you would think they would. Yeah, I feel like that one in particular. I was not terribly surprised that they didn't want pregnant women, um, women who had like a bunch of small children, but, uh, the act even said, um, you had to get a waiver if you were married. And then if you like acquired children, even if it was through adoption or having stepchildren, so it could be two service members, you know, mill to mill and they could get married and he had children and she didn't, she would be the one to lose her job. But if he had been a single parent up until that point, he would have been able to serve normally, which is just, right. it sounds right now, like today, it sounds so archaic, but I mean, culturally, I guess that's just where they were like women. That was your role, right? You were a wife and you're a mother and that's your duty. And that's your role in society. And we need you to go home and do that. We don't need you here. Yeah, absolutely. And that really was the thinking at the time, again, for most men and women was that the primary role of a woman was to, you know, take care of the home and the family. And most women, particularly enlisted women, viewed the military as like a, probably like a study abroad is viewed now, kind of like a gap year or whatever. Like you go do something cool, something different, something fun, and then you leave that life behind and you go do what you're supposed to do and you get married and you have babies and you stay home with them. Um, But yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I remember being like, yeah, just any any dependent under 18 in your life, essentially, and you can't serve in the military because the assumption is that you're responsible for them. Um, and then also the lack of spousal benefits. Um, so there, there were just not very many. It was just a system that was set up to not encourage women to necessarily stay in. Like the retention was not a factor. No one was concerned about retaining women necessarily, <laughs> obviously. Um, and so that created a force where not a lot of women did join and stay, which then made it seem like, okay, well, women don't want to stay. And it's just, you know, that self-feeding environment where it wasn't beneficial or even realistic, honestly, for most women to make a career of the military without serious maneuvering of their life um, or goals or, or whatever. Yeah, I feel like it's, there's just so much cultural 
um, background there? Because I think too, you said in the book, you know, women even, you didn't even want to do this, right? The resistance was coming just as much from women as it was for men. Obviously women weren't really encouraged to stick around the benefits, certainly weren't what they are now. Um, but also culturally, it seems like it wasn't really acceptable for most, at least like middle-class women to even have jobs, let alone something in such a specifically male career field. Then of course, though, we have the Korean War, uh, you know, which looks different than World War II, but we're kind of back to the draft. We're back to considering women for certain roles in the military. Uh, so what did that look like? Yeah, for sure. Um, and like we had talked about a little earlier, the, the, the flavor of the 1950s really didn't, did not uh, support women joining the military. Um, and so, yeah, when the draft came back around for the Korean War and women were being recalled, particularly women who had um, step, not, not fully separated earlier, but just went into the reserve or joined the reserve um, after World War II, but then were recalled, they had a big problem because a lot of women at that point had gotten married or gotten pregnant. And so they actually temporarily got rid of the marriage um, rule or rule or allowance, I guess is a better word. Um, so that marriage was no longer a reason that women could separate. Cause at that time it was almost seen like it was a benefit, you know, that a woman could always join. And then whenever she wanted to get married, she could just leave. And so they got rid of that during the Korean war um, to help with retention, um, but they really just struggled with recruiting at that time. They had this massive DOD recruiting campaign and kind of tried to change the cultural narrative around uh, women's military service. But, you know, those things, they just linger like certain stereotypes and, and a lot of it from World War II, which was, you know, not even a decade ago was still lingering um, this idea that women should not be serving except probably in specific circumstances. And yeah, particularly, you know, like middle-class or educated women, not only was there better, more, you know, air quote, appropriate options out there for an educated woman to, if she really wanted to work outside the home, um, it just wasn't, there was kind of seen as like, there's no need to go do that and be in the military. Um, and so a lot of these recruiting campaigns were actually aimed towards uh, high school students and parents of high school students to like allow their child or their daughter uh, to go enlist or to commission um, because that was a restriction within the Integration Act was women had to be 21 in order to enlist. So they and anything under that, they had to have their parents permission. Um, so, you know, one of those, again, kind of archaic, interesting things. Um, but yeah, so it was a unique, again, unique kind of phase where we needed a lot of men quickly and women now that we had access to women, but it was so different from World War II, not only in the type of conflict, but everyone was just burned out on being at war because <laughs> they had just given up everything and shifted their whole lives for the past few years. And it was like, we had finally started getting back to normal. You know, the economy's great. Everyone wants to stay home and just do the, you know, the normal thing, whatever that was. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of resistance. The 1950s were not great for women in the military. Um, and a, a large part of it was because of that cultural resistance. So when they did take women, I know you um, talked in the book about how high the recruiting standards were for female service members, especially as compared to the ones for um, male service members. What were some of the recruiting standards? And then if women did come in, what kinds of jobs were they actually doing? 
Yeah, at that point during the 1950s, um, slowly the amount of jobs that women were able to do or were actually doing, primarily always nursing and administrative, um, and that theme kind of stayed through the decades. But just the amount of different kind of jobs women could do, whether that's you know, air traffic control or certain types of intel jobs, those slowly over the years, particularly after the Korean War ended, went away and just disappeared because they were, you know, not needed, not felt like they were appropriate for women. And a lot of that is just the bigger picture of during the 50s and 60s, we were, after the Korean War, we were in this cold, cold war era, right? Like it was kind of the height of that cold war feel and that nuclear deterrent strategy. And so the Air Force was getting a ton of money and a ton of support. And they were kind of the darling service at that time. Um, but in fields that women were not necessarily in. And so it was kind of almost like this, we're important now, like we need to go focus on the aviation and the combat stuff. And um, so women can do the administrative and like stay to the side and get out of our way a little bit. And, you know, of course, no, I don't think any gender type of discrimination, very few people, I think, think they're doing it intentionally or whatever. It's just a reflection of the culture and what was acceptable and what people thought to be true and, and how they were raised and all these things. So um, yeah, the availability of jobs decreased over the years and the number of women who necessarily wanted to do them also decreased because they just didn't expect or um, expect anything different, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Um, but of course, there are always women who did want more and who did want different and who did push back, which is awesome because that's how you get change, which we start to see a lot of um, in the early 1970s, uh, which started kind of in the 60s, particularly during the Vietnam War. One of the other things too that really struck me about this moment in time, and again, definitely a reflection of what was going on culturally uh, and that moment, women generally were, enlisted women still kind of really weren't wanted. Um, and a lot of the women who were able to apply and be accepted were not only generally already college graduates, um, but also they're part of like female officer professional development was appearance based, like a better look, looking WAF was sort of the, the catch line, right? Where we want the women to be attractive. You know, I want my secretary to also be easy on the eyes. And that seems crazy right now, you know, with all of the laws that we have for, you know, right. gender equality <laughs> and things like that, right. but that's very mad men, right? That it feels so yeah. 50s and sixties to say, yeah, you can come work here. You can be my secretary but I need you to be good looking. I need you to look good in your uniform. Yeah, absolutely. They used to have um, women submit photographs of themselves when they applied for different jobs um, because obviously, yeah, they're trying to pick the, the best looking. Um, and so that was the enlisted walk was kind of always under the gun, uh, especially for the first few decades where there were, there were plenty of voices who said, we don't need enlisted women in the military. We have enlisted men who can do all these jobs. We don't need them. It's fine. Officer women were, were left alone a little more, number one, because there were way less of them, um, only a few hundred at any one time, like in the whole Air Force. Um, and they were better able to <laughs> stovepipe them, I guess, and use them as, number one, um, supervisors of enlisted women. And administrative, like 
secretary type thing. And so, yeah, they were very into the appearance and keeping everyone uh, fit and trim and fit, not really, but trim and slim. And um, yeah, the the handbook, I put a few pages in there. Um, I found that one at the National Archives in D.C. from 1957. That was this um, handbook for, for WAF, and it was just this, you know, probably issued one every year or something. It looked like a fairly common one, but just filled with makeup advice and how to how to kind of like fancy up your uniform. And, and yeah, that was part of PME essentially, or basic training was not only how to wear a uniform, but like how to look good in your uniform and do your makeup correctly and your hair and like be in style and be in regs. And um, just the emphasis on the feminine appearance, which of course uh, also hurt everyone right because then it just overemphasized the fact that like this is what the women are doing and they're so different from the men and that type of behavior or job or whatever is for women which you know is by definition what men shouldn't be doing because men should only be doing manly things and so just kind of further uh widen that divide and and a lot of that is because while we were in the cold war kind of panic it was also relatively a peacetime era you know i mean for the average person there was no overwhelming um uh imposition to their daily life and so those type of things uh structures and like expectations started to creep in slowly more and more and more (laughs) um so yeah by the early 1960s was the lowest retention the lowest numbers um for women in the air force and i believe women in all the other services as well um and in part because of those kind of that kind of divide right like it was just this dark um, difference between men and women in the air force and what they were allowed to do and how they were expected to behave and yeah, women had to go through, they had to be older, they generally had to be more educated, um, have a high school diploma or higher. Um, most of the women at this time, you actually didn't have to have a college degree to be an officer or to commission. So um, I forget the exact statistics. I think only 46% of officers had college degrees, but of that 46%, like 75 or more percent were women who had those degrees. So they were generally overqualified, overeducated. They had to do um, the, I think I talk about it in the book, the psychological test too, that t- sort of thing. Like there were just all these extra hurdles to jump um, that if you were educated and all these other things, then you probably weren't going to do them realistically. You're probably just going to go be a teacher or something else that was more easier, socially acceptable, and you probably got paid better as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of crazy looking back at all of these restrictions. Um, like you said, that there were male quote unquote experts deciding what was an appropriate career field for a woman, and it had to be psychologically, physiologically, and sociologically suitable for them. Right. Um, right. And at one point, someone even said uh, the WAF will no longer be assigned to jobs where they create resentment or are termed a nuisance. And if you're a woman with a college degree, and you know, and your goal for going to college was that you wanted to have a job. And, you know, have, I guess that sort of satisfaction for yourself. I mean, you can't blame them for not wanting to stick around for this. This is not, this this doesn't seem very fulfilling, you know, to go through all of that college and getting so educated just to turn around and, you know, be in laundry or to be assigned to, you know, cook and, you know, even administrative work is important, but it's not maybe necessarily what you went to college for. You know, you could be, I would imagine at that time you could be, get a secretarial job fairly easily because there's so many companies that needed 
good secretaries. Right. Right. And you were not even necessarily being judged on your quality of work. You were being judged on your appearance. So even if you were a quality secretary, no one really cared if you weren't also great looking, <laughs> you know? Right. And then you also mentioned this one really threw me because I still, I still don't know that I totally understand this one. There were age caps on female service members so that no one who was going through menopause would be wearing a uniform. Yes. Yeah. I found that kind of like buried in one of the, um, the WAF reports or somewhere in the archives. And I was like, what? And of course I couldn't find anything else necessarily that talked about it except for um, another memoir I found where she mentioned it as well. And yeah, it was just that um, perspective at the time, which I would argue still probably exists a little bit buried in our culture today as well, um, where women were just like assumed to be and expected to be much more emotional, hysterical, that, that whole thing. And so, yeah, they felt that women going through menopause, um, were, were unstable, emotionally, mentally unstable. And so they didn't want them, um, in the service. And so, uh, you know, one of the books I'm working on now, actually, it just came across a study from 2001 where it's called the girl who cried pain and where essentially, uh, when women and men are given are put under the same amount of pain, the same like level for the same amount of time, um, men are more likely to be prescribed pain relievers and women are more likely to be prescribed um, sedatives because that idea persists that um, women's emotions are unpredictable and hysterical and that, that whole thing. And I mean, I could talk about that for, you know, hours. That's a whole nother episode. I know. Right. I was just thinking Um, the same thing. I was like, don't get me started. I know, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it was just that that line of thinking, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I really felt like there was a big correlation between what was going on in the bigger picture in the world and how that trickled down and how women were viewed and treated. And, like, certain things became so important, like whether a woman was thin or pretty. But then during, you know, when conflicts or tensions were tightened and we needed personnel, it was like, ah, you know, whatever, it's fine. She can still do her job, you know? So it was like, whatever was important shifted depending on the flavor of of whatever was perceived to be important, you know, in the bigger picture at the time. Thank you for joining us for part one of Air Force Women's History with Major Marissa Kester. Stay tuned for part two, where we delve more deeply into the role of the 14th Amendment and Equal Rights and the landmark cases that made seismic changes in the roles women played in the Air Force. You can find Major Kester's book, There from the Beginning, for free on the Air University website, or if you're at Maxwell, you can swing by the library for a free copy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks. 